Welcome to Unpacking the Digital Shelf, where we explore brand manufacturing in the digital age. All right. Hello, everyone. I'm Peter Crosby coming to you from the Digital Shelf Institute's remote headquarters in South Boston. Rob's on from the Berkshires. Hey, Rob. Hello. So I thought we'd start um, today with a view of e-commerce sort of from 20,000 feet. Like what, what has jumped out at us, at us uh, in this past week that sort of uh, that caught our attention? And, and I think particularly around what have we seen that starts to maybe hint at, at trying to figure out what is the durable change? You know, there's obviously a lot of big expansions happen and big um, – big downturns happening in various categories and, and consumer behavior. What, what do we think is going to last? And was there something that stood out for you, Rob? Yeah, that's the multi hundred billion dollar question, <laughs> yes. right? It's, there's, it's, I think the media spends so much time for good reason, because it's interesting to, to look at all the short term stuff, such as the toilet paper panic buying and people like L'Oreal producing hand sanitizer instead of perfumes and all the 3M Trump drama and uh, 3M ramping up its production to 55 million N95 masks a month, which is incredible and and all that sort of stuff. But the, the real question with all this is, all right, in three months or whatever time period, the economy opens back up and people can go back to stores. Are we just going to go back to normal or is it, or are things going to be different? And the first stat that I've seen that indicates there's going to be some durable change was listed in the publication uh, Retail Brew, which sends some retail information every single day to you. I think it's actually pretty good retail uh, rag if, if people are looking for something else to subscribe to. And the stat that they had was that prior to the COVID-19 epidemic, 6% of Americans had tried and liked online grocery ordering and that and liked part is really really <laughs> that's, that's important, key right? right yeah there's a lot there's a lot happening in that word right the word liked is doing a lot of work in this, <laughs> yes and, and like i just think about you know my, my wife and i because we both work we do online grocery ordering a lot but it's often frustrating recently we we did an online grocery order where two of the avocados out of four that we ordered were rotted and, and the, the reason for that is for online grocery, whether it's click and collect or whether it's, it's delivery, the picking cost is by far the, the biggest challenge for the grocers. And so the, the only way to get the picking cost down is to pick more, right? You got to get more productivity out of each of your pickers. And so they're not sitting there and testing every single vegetable that they throw in your bag the way that you would. And so one of the common issues that you have is the the vegetables are not the freshest or they're a little rotted or they've gone off or whatever. And in ways that the picker won't immediately notice when they're picking it up. Mm -hmm. And so the 6% tried and liked is really important. Now, there's lots of stats depending on where you are, whether you're in Seattle or New York or another major metro area. In some cases, the online grocery penetration and usage has gone up to 40 points. I mean, getting pretty close to what it is at baseline in the UK. And most people look at that and say, man, there's no way it's going to stay at 40 points after this thing. And I think that's right. So the question is, does it go back to, to you know, whatever, 4 or 
penetration or is it somewhere between four and five penetration and, and 40? So the retail brew stat was that now instead of 6% had tried and liked it, now it's 12% had tried and liked it. So the 12% is obviously less than the total penetration, but it gives a sense of what the floor might be. Yeah, when the necessity comes out of it, who, what will be the number that's going to stay just because they did, you know, it was good enough and it makes their life more convenient. That's and right. they're not yeah. going back into a store that kind of, you know, it's going to be a while before stores feel like, yeah, let's all just run back in there again, right? If, I mean, just think about it this way. Jumping from, call it, five-ish percent online grocery order penetration um, in America to 10, you know, not even getting to that 12 mark, going from five to 10 overnight is like compressing five years of online grocery ordering growth into yeah. like three weeks, right? Um, so I, I think that that 12% tried and liked is the first stat that I've seen that gives an indication on what, what a durable change might look like in the new normal after COVID-19. Meanwhile, on the, on the sort of the side of explosive growth that may or may not last, but are super interesting numbers. You have alcohol is a sweet product of this time. I mean, Nielsen reported um, alcohol sales in the U.S. rose 55% annually year over year for the week ending March 21st. Online sales jumped 243% for the period. At least 220% of that is me, but... (laughs) I don't know who the who the other you know twenty three percent are, um, and, but this stat I thought was super interesting. So Drizzly, the, you know, the you ordering online for for alcohol delivery, new user acquisition up five hundred percent. Yeah, like, I mean that's, and that was even I saw that stat, and it was even before the end of the month of March where that stat came up. So it's probably even more than that. the The interesting thing about Drizzly and really any uh, consumer facing online ordering marketplace system is that the the growing the business is expensive because acquiring new users is expensive. You have to mm-hmm. let people know that you're available and you have to, in order to, you know, to, to online and deliver alcohol. And then you've got to get them to try you out at least once. And those two steps are expensive. And then once they try you out, try you out once, you have to try to get them to make it a habit of a couple more times. And it's not until a user is habitually using a system like Drizzly where that user actually, it's not until that point that the user becomes profitable, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of upfront cost in growing the audience and growing the users before the the system can grow. So this this usage growth for Drizzly is a gift. And they're getting tremendous amounts of users who are stuck at home and they're searching online grocery delivery. And Drizzly is the biggest in the, in the country. They're a great Boston-based entrepreneur-led uh, organization. And so, so it's awesome, right? And I think also this is another durable change. The problem with, with online grocery delivery is that most people didn't know that it existed. I, I was giving a presentation last week to the global e-commerce leaders of a Fortune 500 CPG company. And I mentioned the Drizzly stat. And I was interrupted and said, wait, what company? Who are they? 
How do you spell that? Because <laughs> I'm super thirsty right now. <laughs> exactly. Like they, 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 weren't, they weren't like looking for data for their own internal PowerPoint presentations. They were saying, I need to order booze. No, especially, especially like listening to you made him want to drink is what you're telling me. <laughs> well, yeah. Wouldn't be the first time I've had that effect. No, it would um, not. <laughs> so, so yeah, I think that's another really interesting indication that I think a lot of people, I mean, I've used Drizzly on and off for, for years. Um, you know, we heard about them early cause they're in Boston and they're great. And the, the service is great. And I just can't imagine that a lot of people are going to try this thing and then not use them at least on occasion on a go forward basis. And that's going to be transformative for alcohol. The, the other interesting thing about that, about that is that stat, the 55% stat, um, there's a number of major alcohol uh, manufacturers that are part of the Digital Shelf Institute. And several of them have said that the growth in online orders has more than made up for the lost orders in restaurants and bars, which is that's astounding to me. I mean, that's I did I wasn't expecting that. I was ex in a lot of in a lot of CPG companies. You see online orders being a really bright spot in an otherwise dismal performance across the across the entire CPG portfolio. But in alcohol, you're seeing the online part being so bright that it makes up for the loss in other channels. And I, I've never seen that happen before. It's just yeah, incredible. Yeah, and what I loved on that call was also. Um, now I think that it was most it was all CPG companies that were on that call, executives that were on that call, but every one of them was saying that um, they're seeing organizational shifts towards digital um, access to budget, access to experimentation that other parts of the business may have um, resisted or blocked before. That now those walls are getting. Um, sort of blown down in the interest of trying to move to the spot where the you know where the puck is and and I thought that that's very encouraging for the agility of these companies over the long term. Do do you agree? Yeah, I do. But it, it's the one of the most interesting points that was made in that discussion was that typically when when a, when a major CPG company or major major manufacturer that's that's consumer facing plans their annual budget, a lot of the media dollars, a lot of the advertising spend is committed upfront in various ways because you, you, you work with the networks and you commit the spend upfront and by committing it upfront, um, you get discounts on the year rather than buying ad hoc as you go. And one of the things that, that uh, uh, was mentioned on the call is that right now the up, people are unwilling to do upfronts now, mm -hmm. so contracts that are up for negotiation for television advertising are going to be structured differently. And in the past, what's been, what's been, what's been tough about the upfront structure is that, I mean, whatever, whatever a, a company's annual advertising buying cycle looks like, like, let's call it the calendar year. On January 1st, you've committed the vast majority of media spend for, for brand advertising. And that means that in the middle of the year, if you've got indication that you want to actually double or triple down on Amazon advertising or um, advertising in some other digital means, you, there's some money that's at play, but really you have to wait until the cycle repeats itself. And then when the cycle repeats itself, it's a negotiation between the brand team and the trade team and the digital team. And, and so maybe you shift 10% of the budget. And so it's this process that over the last five or six years, 
money has moved in broad strokes from TV to other places. But right now, they're over and over for the next bunch of months, instead of that money being locked up in TV for a year in a way that the brand teams can't even, you know, you can't negotiate with your own brand team if you wanted to, to get that money out. Instead, the companies are just putting a pause on that and, and, and moving that money over to digital performance marketing and mass because it's the only thing that they can really invest in. And they're, and they're telling the, the, the TV companies to wait on it a little bit. And this is one of these shifts. Big deal. Yeah. It's a huge deal. I mean, this could, take the next five or 10 years of momentum of the way that brand dollars are allocated and it could compress it into the next six months and, and it could make it maybe uh, change the structures so that maybe upfronts, if upfronts are even 30% less as important going forward as they are right now, that's a absolutely monumentally huge shift and the way that brand advertising functions and the way that these, these companies deploy capital to, to engage consumers. So that, so absolutely. That's another one of these areas where I see a great potential for there to be a durable change that has far reaching implications on, on a bunch of different industries. Um, but right now we're just seeing the, the tip of the sphere and it's, it's going to be, it's, it's unclear how sticky that's going to be yet. Yeah. You had talked about another example of that with Ben Thompson in his Stratechery newsletter talking about, um, the you know the the movie makers the the studios getting some of their power back in terms of when first run movies play and how uh, and that that's a model that has been so durable be, because they needed that they needed to go where the demand was and the demand is at theaters but now the demand is on you know on your your screen and the, you can you can get your audience it's sort of like user acquisition costs coming down. It's changing. Yeah, right? this is the, the, the specific uh, example that he gave. I thought it's super interesting. So in 2011, uh, I believe it was Universal Studios was launching the movie Tower Heist. And they were going to launch it through theaters like you always launch movies, through AMC and whatever. And they wanted to run an experiment. Their experiment was based on the premise that there's a bunch of people who like to watch action movies who don't go to the theater because... They've got kids and I, I, speaking for myself, you know, middle-aged little kids, I'm just not going to the movie theater. That's not going to happen for me, you know, until the kids, maybe 10 years from now, I'll go to the movie theater again, but for the next 10 years, it's not happening. Oh, that's so sad. And, so the, 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 and Universal said, you know, that there, there are people out there like Rob and maybe these people are willing to spend 50 bucks for the right to, to live stream the movie via Comcast into their home and who cares how many people they invite over. So like Rob might have three of his middle-aged friends with kids over and they'll have some <laughs> beers and they'll watch tower heist. And, and that's good for everyone. Cause they, their, their thought was it wasn't going to take away revenue from the theaters because people go to the theater for the theater experience, but it was going to add overall revenue and margin to the movie launch. Now the theaters of course did not like this idea one iota. Right. And they said, no way, Universal, if you put this through Comcast, we are not going to carry Tower Heist. So Universal said, oh, okay, not, that's fine. I guess we're not going to do this Comcast experiment. And, and, it, and it all went away. And then uh, at that time, I believe the stat was, it, on average, it took 120 days between when a movie first launched in theater to when it was available um, for 
rental um, through whatever the blockbuster equivalents are in, in your area. And in that 120 days, it went from theater to JetBlue and the the, the paying <laughs> yeah, airlines <laughs> and you know paying through at, at your hotels where it costs 20 bucks to rent the movie right now to retail where it's 20 bucks for the DVD, the Blu-ray to, you know, going down that chain takes about 120 days. Now over the, over the next nine years between 2011 and 2020, that 120 days is compressed into 90 days. So there was a, there's a shift that's happening. Eventually, if you draw the trend out far enough, you're going to get to near simultaneous launch in theaters and through other mediums. Um, Now, obviously the theaters are closed. And Disney and Universal and everybody is launching direct to consumer over the top. So OT, through OTC channels, uh, Netflix, Disney Plus, Hulu, um, Amazon Prime and whatnot. And so that, sh- that, that shift has happened, boom, overnight. And after this, that's likely to be durable. Now that Disney knows that it could just put Onward or whatever movie comes out direct to consumer, um, it's going to just do that every single time. And it, one of the other shifts that was really interesting is between 2011 and 2020, Disney, because Disney's brands are so incredible, Disney's margin in the theater is the highest mar- ticket margin for a film producer of any of them. And it was 70-ish percent up from 50%. So over the last 10 years, Disney's just been clawing margin. Eisner's just done an incredible job with that company. And... Uh, that margin is an indication that the theaters were having less and less negotiating power over the brands like Star Wars that Disney owns and that people really will pay anything to see. And so Disney now, maybe it'll launch the next Star Wars to movie theaters first and hold off on the OTC launch through Disney Plus. But if it's doing that, it's doing that at its own terms on whatever whatever margin it wants. Yeah. So th- this shift in the in that industry was a shift that was coming. I mean, it was inevitable, whether it's five years out or 10 years out or three years out or whatever, you can, you can debate, but now it's now, now it's zero years out. And that's, that really goes back to the whole fundamental driving force behind the digital shelf, which is at the, at the core of this, it's the consumer deciding what they want their journey to be. And now that the capabilities have sort of fallen into place to make that actually happen. And now the necessity of this time spreading it probably farther and faster than it, than it would have been. Um, there's no going back from that. And so that's where, that's what I know absolutely will be durable is that this expansion and acceleration of the consumer and the B2B buyer starting to be in charge of their own journey and where, how they want to shop, discover, buy all of that. That's going to happen across all industries and at a faster rate than we would have expected just a month ago. Yeah, this is the the big theme here. And people who have seen me talk about this stuff, I'm sorry for the repetition. The big theme here is that a crisis accelerates underlying trends. And one of the great examples um, from Circle Up, which is a a investment company out of San Francisco that invests in a lot of emerging brands. And we did an interview with one of them, one of their partners on the podcast. Um, and they had a stat on their blog, which was in 2008, there was a, there was already a trend in place. If you go back to 2001, two, three, four, five, six, seven, there was a trend in place where there was a rise of emerging brands 
and a taking of market share by emerging brands from established brands. That was that was something that was happening. And when they use the term emerging brand, they don't mean direct to consumer brands like the Instagram brands that that could rise and fall very quickly, like you've seen in the last seven, eight years. This is before Instagram. These were new brands that were going in store, uh, omni channel, yeah. um, that were going through farmers markets and that that were going in some cases catalog direct to consumer and Benson's hams and stuff like that, right? And so there's there was a rise of these emerging brands that were eating market share in the margins of the, the major multinational manufacturers. Now, what you saw in 2008 is that this trend, which was already happening, shot up. And all of a sudden, between 2008 and 2011, the brands took uh, close to 10 points of share in aggregate across the major manufacturers that were out there. And that is an acceleration of the market share shift by about five, six years compared to baseline on what they were expecting before the 2008 crisis. So the power of a crisis to take an underlying trend, something that was already happening, but was slow and was fighting a lot of inertia in an in industry to, to happen. A crisis will acutely accelerate those trends in a way that is durable. And so the, the interesting stuff that we're paying attention to, that this is throughout this whole conversation, are looking at the market, there's all kinds of crazy that's happened in the short term. What are these long-term trends that the crisis is going to accelerate and make durable? Online ordering of grocery, online ordering of alcohol, for as two examples. So Rob, don't give too much of that away because coming up on April 16th, we'll be releasing to the market your recorded presentation on what the trends that you're seeing and what you believe will be the durables and what will be the snapbacks. And that will be coming up on April 16th. Uh, and so look out for that. As, as many of our listeners know, we've created this Digital Shelf Virtual Summit series of content experiences that we'll be rolling out over the next few months. So Rob will be coming out on April 16th. And you can see what else we've got going on at salsify.com slash digital dash self dash summit dash 2020. Could we have made that any more difficult? Probably not. Salsify.com slash digital dash shelf dash summit dash 2020. And that's our podcast for today. Thanks as always for being part of our community. 